Okay, so how does so how does your podcast begin? I've never heard your podcast, Mike. Oh man, that's a deep cut right out of the gate. I, I haven't listened to them not yeah. at all. I could have to prepare for this. Yeah, you know, I, I'm kind of I do a podcast too. Have you heard it? Is it serial? <laughs> so how long is, is your it, podcast? I like I like put on I, headphones. <laughs> how long is your podcast? I like, I like S Town. Is that are you involved with that? How long is your podcast? No, I like This American Life the most. And actually, the recent episodes have been, we were just saying this off air, maybe on air, depending on what you recorded. It's been uh, incredible. The The podcast itself is going to be, it's intercut audio from the album, mm-hmm. Today Sleepwalk With Me. Oh, with the conversation we have about and, it. And intercut with our conversation about it. Okay. I'm going to tell you a story tonight. And it's a crazy story. You know, it's just one of those very rare moments in your life where in retrospect you're like what the hell and at the time you're like i guess i'll continue living i don't know it's like if you went to the dentist and he asked you to take your pants off and you're just just like "Uh, i don't know you know i'm gonna make a note of this this seems strange Uh, so so where should we start because i have as you see i've brought with me notes yeah, I am deeply familiar. No, with, with sleepwalk with me, certainly, because I've, I saw you do it on stage many, many times, and then That's we adapted right. it into a film mm-hmm. that you produced and co-wrote. Do you worry sometimes, like like the 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 plot of of this story, where where you jump through the window? It's so memorable. Are there people who know you as the guy? Yeah, who ju- yeah, yeah. I know what you're going to say it is. They do. And do you worry, like, go, this is the most the famous... Yeah, that's the sleepwalking guy. Yeah, and do you worry that this is the most famous thing you'll ever do? Absolutely, yeah. Because it's like a... It's, and it's like a physical ailment. Like, it's not cured. Like, that's what I... I have to point that out in my new show. Like, like there is no cure for what I have. If I had died, I don't say this in the show, but if I had died, my death, if, jumping through the window, my death would have been described in the coroner's report as a pseudo-suicide. In other words, that I, you, you know, he committed suicide. I'm like, no, give me, <laughs> give me suicide. No air quotes, you know. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, it's, uh, no, it's a really strange thing is, uh, there's, a, there's a bunch of people who just know me as this guy who has the severe sleepwalking disorder and so, yeah, the new show and everything that follows, I'm just trying to make something that's more memorable than that. But it's hard because how many life experiences can a person have that are as memorable as that? Well, that's what I always say when people say, how, do you, how did you get on this American life? Well, I say, well, I jumped through a window. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. What do you got? <laughs> I jumped through a window to get on this American life. <laughs> We could make that a meme with me, yeah. jumping, me jumping through a window and Dude, waving, waving to the camera. I, I jumped through a window too. That's how I got on, basically. It was just, uh, it was a really hard, it was, it was hard. It was hard. Yeah. Yeah. In a, in a certain sense. Yeah. Yeah. It, but it, at least jumping through the window was quick. Mine was sort of a slow motion, jumping <laughs> through the window. And your, and your parents didn't improve. They were like, you, you know, Ira, you shouldn't jump through that window. <laughs> they know, but that's true, actually. When I made when I started this American Life, my parents were still against me being on uh, the radio. Yeah, they still wanted me to be a doctor. Well, that's part of what you relate to about this story. We've always had that in common. Yeah, 
our parents. This is a. I'll. Well, maybe I could play. Yeah, we could play the track. Don't tell anyone. It's about my dad. Mm-hmm. He's just the kind of guy who knows stuff, which is intimidating for someone like me who knows nothing. Because my fear when speaking with someone who knows stuff is that it'll reveal and accentuate that I know nothing. And obviously, I don't know nothing. You know, no one knows nothing. It's just the levels of things we know are very different. You know, my dad knows about the hemispheres of the brain. And I know that if I spill Diet Coke on my laptop, it probably won't start again, you know? (laughs) And that's why my dad was so disappointed that I became a comedian. You know, he worked his whole life to send me to college so I would learn stuff. And I didn't. And I got a job making fun of him in front of strangers. So that whole plan kind of backfired. My parents, I think one of the reasons why they didn't want me to go into public radio was because they had they had struggled so much to get into the middle class. Like my mom yeah. was the first person in her family to ever go to college. Yeah. My dad, when he was a kid, like six and seven years old, worked in the kind of the corner store. Like there's no Jewish word for bodega, but that's basically what it was that his grandparents owned in downtown Baltimore. And he worked in the store as a child, so did my uncle. And so to like, so have had to, so to have gotten out and gone to college and made it into the suburbs. And then they're just like, well, you're a bright kid. Like, you know, we insisted you get all A's, which, you know, which I did because I thought that was my job. Like that was my job as a kid. And and I was kind of a people pleaser kid, and then they're just like, well, now you're going to go to college and you're going to be a doctor, and and the thought that I wouldn't kind of go further with them, that in fact I would go to something more financially insecure than than what they had. Yeah, we, they just didn't understand it. It made them really scared for me because yeah. they had known such financial insecurity in their in their childhoods. I yeah, know, I, I had w- the same thing. My my grandfather, who I never met, my father's father, had like a bodega in Brooklyn. For real? Yeah. Wow. Literally, literally. I mean, it was called Joe's Luncheonette, and it was like basically what's described to me as a bodega. Hmm. And he also uh, worked on the subway. Like he was an electrician in the subway tunnels. Hmm. And so it was like real blue-collar work. And then my dad did extraordinarily well in school and became a doctor. And then this, I think this idea of that I would somehow go backwards with the family name, I think was not appealing. When did your parents finally accept, like, okay, this this is fine? What was it? I think part of it was, like, a little bit, I did Letterman when I was pretty young, and they were kind of like, oh, okay, this is the David Letterman show. That's pretty big. Can we just pause on that? Because yeah. that is literally when my parents gave up. <laughs> no, no, it literally was. Like I was I was I was forty one years old. Yeah. And the radio show had been on the air for five years. Yeah. So so like like I've been doing this American Life for five years and I went on television for the very first time to promote the show on our yeah. fifth anniversary. And it was the Letterman show. And literally it was because I went on Letterman, my mom got on the phone with me and she's like, Okay, you win. Like you don't have to go to medical school. Wow. We had a whole talk about it. David Letterman d- gave both of us that gift. That man's a saint. He's a saint. <laughs> it's weird that he gave both. I bet and about a, a and lot about, of people too. And about right? a lot of people too. Yeah, like that. It was such a like a legitimizing thing. It was like, oh, you're really in the culture. Yeah, he, he, yeah. Letterman in some ways was was one of the last standing cultural icons who who meant 
who meant a thing. I remember when I was on the show for the first time, I had never been on a TV show like most people. And I remember like I th- the thing that surprised me the most is how close you're sitting to him when you're sitting <laughs> in the chair. And I remember like you're really close to him and he kind of, kind of leans to you. Like, you know, he like you're in the chair and he's at the desk and he leans to you. And, and he looks just like David Letterman. I remember thinking like, I could touch him. Should I touch him? Would that be a bit? <laughs> I was like, no, no. Everything you know about David Letterman tells you, like, don't touch David yeah. Letterman. Like, I really just felt like, oh, I could just reach across with my finger and, yeah. like, touch his face. Like, yeah. is he right there? Like, I've seen him on TV. And, like, look, he's right here. I could just touch him. And his face has all the, like, makeup on it. Like, so he looks like, you know, like a, a person with makeup and not yeah. a person who's real. I don't know. Well, you, you know that I was on the show, like, five times over the years, and I never met him. I mean, that's that's how strange that experience is. Can you imagine going on someone's show five times and you don't even meet the person? You mean like backstage, like I would stand- he never comes and yeah, says yeah, hi. Yeah, yeah, never comes back, says hi. I do stand up on the show. He shakes my hand. He's gone. I'm gone. It's like, I'm escorted this way. He's escorted this way. And it's your idol. It's just this person you look up to. So last year, I did a USO, I think it was 50th anniversary of the USO. And it was, it was me and Judd Apatow and... John Mulaney and Kristen Schaal and Hassan Minaj and John Stewart and David Letterman. And those are the people. Wow. And there's no, and, and Obama, President Barack Obama and Joe Biden and their wives. What? The first lady. That was a show lady. that you were in? Yes, correct. Are they going to be coming on the podcast too? Or is it just like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's why I'm here. Yeah, keep going. So, but this is how big of nerds me and Judd are both, Judd's obviously a titan of comedy, but and and I'm what I am, but I, but but we're both nerds. We share a nerddom of comedy, and we both love David Letterman. Mm-hmm. And so we're waiting in line to take a photo with the president, but also waiting in line is David Letterman. <laughs> <laughs> so we just like gang up on him and are like, "Can we take a picture with you?" <laughs> we became like these selfie selfie nerd fanboys and- of Letterman, and like he had to talk to us. I mean, we're in. an airline hangar like there's nowhere to go there's no like secret David Letterman like getaway (laughs) you know what I mean like there's no compartment he can go in but and and we and so he had to talk to us and then I said to him I said to him the thing I always dreamed of saying to him I go I could just so you know and this is why he doesn't talk to comedians he doesn't want to hear this I could just so you know like comedians like me when we sit around at the table we talk about being on your show means to us what it meant to the last generation to be on Johnny Carson. And he said, that's nice of you to say, but but it's hard for me to believe that. And it's just like, yeah, that's the David Letterman response. Yeah, I, got, I believe him too. I, I believe that it is hard for him to believe that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that was the thing that would, that, that got my parents to sort of come around. I think, you know, and then the other thing was that someone sleepwalk with me uh, was off Broadway. I was on The View, and and my mom watches The View religiously, <sighs> and so I got to bring her in the audience of The View, and I got, she got to meet Joy Behar. So it's kind of like it's a pretty big win. Can I say The View is just as iconic as Letterman? Do you think so? Oh my God! Because well, yeah. of Barbara. Because of the whole thing. They invented a genre of thing in the way that he invented a genre of thing. It's a completely original show. Right. And 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 each one of them on the show is iconic in the way they play. Well, Whoopi is, and Joy is, and For sure. Barbara is. Of Although course. Barbara's not on the show anymore, I don't think. But 
But yeah, no, but I, do you I know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. like, like the, it's like the cast of Seinfeld. Do you know what I mean? No, like, you're right. like, like each one of them is like an icon in a different way, and on that show, and they just, they just, like they just invented a thing. Like, like I can see why your mom was 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 really yeah yeah was really why that would be a big deal for her. Of course it, of course it was. They're the they're the Mount Rushmore of that thing. That, yeah, that's that's the that's that's the bridge of the Starship Enterprise of that thing. Wow, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, no, it would. There's nothing like it before. Yeah, you know something that I noticed yeah. going through Sleepwalk with me this time. Yeah, there's a structural flaw in the beginning, and I can't believe I never noticed it. That the bladder thing at the beginning shouldn't be in the show. When I was 19, I had a malignant tumor in my bladder, but it's funny, stay with me, uh, (laughs) because I'm a hypochondriac. And I think the funniest thing that can happen to a hypochondriac is that you get cancer because it confirms every fear you've ever had in your entire life. You're like, see, I told you. Remember last week when I was overtired and I thought I had rickets? I was probably right about that too. There's gonna be a lot of changes around here. I think you and I met in July of 2008 and the show mounted Off-Broadway in October of 2008. And you told me in previews for the show, you go, the bladder story shouldn't be in the show. Oh, I guess I've forgotten that. Well, yeah. I'm so seeing you, it again today. So you, just like, so it you shouldn't go, be in it shouldn't be in the show. You go, it doesn't serve the purpose of the larger story, which is the, the point of the show is that everything serves the larger story. And, and all it is is a funny bit. Well, I mean, we could we could argue about this all day, but I agree with you. I was listening to I was listening to the album for the first time in a long time on the subway here, and I remembered, oh yeah, Ira's big note on this was take out the bladder story. And uh, so I didn't take the note, but you are correct about that note. Oh my God. Yeah, in my opinion. I'm, you're correct. That's really nice of you to say. It's funny because in the new show, in the new ones, you had a story. <laughs> the Oklahoma story? Yeah, the Oklahoma <laughs> story. That came exactly <laughs> at the same spot that, that was in the early versions of the show. And I was like, this is so funny. I love this story. It shouldn't be in the show. And I took it out. <laughs> that's, that's how under <laughs> the thumb of Ira Glass I am at this point. But, but, uh, but also I think like you're more, you're like you, it's not me. Like if I hadn't said it to you, eventually you would have realized it on your own. I just happened to be there early on because now you're so structurally tight and all the stuff you're doing. Yeah, but you go, <laughs> you came to the show one night when I was working out down at the comedy cell and you, and you go, uh, you watch the show and you go, you got to get rid of the Oklahoma story. And I was like, yeah, but it's a, good, it's a good story and it's about sleepwalking incident and whatever. And, and in the new show, there's a sleepwalking incident. And, uh, and you go, yeah, just, 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 just take it out. <laughs> and now I, what's funny is, is I know what it's like. I don't have a boss. One of the great things about my job is I don't have a boss. I'm a stand-up comedian. No, I don't work for anybody. The only person I sort of work for is Ira Glass. But you don't even work for me. I, I know I don't work for you. I, don't get, I certainly don't get a check. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> although let me know if it's in some kind of, uh, mailbox around here, if there's an accumulation of envelopes, <laughs> but, but I, uh, but no, I don't work for you, but the way in which I get notes from you now does feel like, yeah, yeah, the, the notes are so true and correct that, that I have to take them. 
like a boss. There was a point during the first movie where, like, we disagreed about something, and I feel like you had moral confusion about who was in charge. <laughs> Do you remember this? I can't remember what what it was. Where moral confusion. You did. You, you, I feel like you were sort of apologetic to me that you wanted to do it differently than I was saying. And and I remember having to say to you, you're the director of the movie. Yeah. I'm just your friend who's sitting in the room with you. Yeah. But you're the producer of the movie. But I understood you were in charge. Right. Like, I wanted you to be in charge. I, I just had a strong opinion. Do you remember what that was? It was, um... Oh, it was, you mean the ending? Was it the of ending? Of the movie? When, it, we, when we brought Lena in and said, how about this ending or this ending? She goes, this ending? After I had been saying that for like a week? Yeah. Yeah. And then fine. And you listened to Lena Dunham? Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like I'll remember that. I'll remember that moment for the rest of my life. Whenever I think of Lena Dunham, I think of that because we were in the edit room on Sleepwalk with Me, and it was how to end the film. And there were two different versions of the ending, and one is the one that's in the movie, um, and then there was another one applause. that was not as good. Applause break. <laughs> and, um, people who aren't here. And um, and there, there were a bunch of people who, and everybody was disagreeing, and and uh, and and I felt really strongly that the one that actually ended up in the movie was so beautiful in a bunch of ways, and did a bunch of things, and solved a bunch of problems, and was very emotional. And uh, but there was like back and forth and back and forth. The other ending was kind of montagey, if I could describe it. It's uh, like it wasn't as. Uh, yeah, I think that's accurate. It didn't have the monologue that you tell, the really beautiful monologue that you tell going into the end. I'll play that monologue for people. This is from Sleepwalk with Me, the movie. When I was getting ready to make this film, I, I was obsessing over my relationship with Abby and what went wrong and, and why she stayed with me, you know, all these years. And, and so I, I went to visit her. She, she lives upstate with her husband and two kids. And I, you know, I called in advance. You know, I didn't show up and say, like, I'm your ex-boyfriend and I want answers, you know. I, that's probably not the best thing to do. And so, I, you know, I, we're friends, and so I, I went and visited her, and, and we're, we're having tea, and, like, our kids are running around. And I, I said to her, I was like, why did you stay with me all those years when you, you knew that, that we were doomed? And she said, I didn't want to hurt you. you believe that? We almost spent the entire rest of our lives together because we didn't want to make the other person mad. And I could not convince you to do this thing. And, uh, and then Lena Dunham comes in, and it was really incredible incredibly impressive. It was almost surgical. She came in and then she literally like ticked off. She said something like, there are four reasons why this is better. And she's like, <laughs> number one, it ties back to the like the opening thing that you're doing in the opening shots of the film where you're talking to the camera. Yeah. Number two, it's this. Number three, it's this. Number four, it's this. It was like, it's right. like she brought a script. Yeah. Like, and she spoke with right. such clarity and precision in a right. way. Number, where, number two is more emotional. Number three, it's, it's a new idea, but it also ties into the beginning. Yeah. yeah, was, yeah. She had a really clear point. And um and and then at the end of it, I just was like, I really was just like, God bless you, 
stranger. Like, I never met her. I'm going to Dunham, whoever you are. Like, God bless you. <laughs> God speed to you. Yeah. And then she left, and I was like, okay, so that's settled, right? And then and then, like, a guy came in to, like, deliver a pizza. It really was just like that. And, <laughs> and you said to him, like, can I show you these two endings and you tell me? <laughs> and I was like, wait, no. It, we settled it. Didn't the smart lady settle it? Didn't the girl genius settle it? Like, I thought it was settled. I, just, I was just like, I can't believe but this is not settled. That's, this is this is a good radio conflict, but that, but it's it's actual real life conflict. A thing that drives y- you crazy about me when we collaborate is that I get input from literally everyone. That's true. But that, but, but don't you think? I know you criticize that about me, but don't you think that that is scientifically a good strategy? Yes, I do. I acknowledge. Yes, <laughs> it is. I have a good factoid from Sleepwalk with me. The movie when I was coming here to work on it with you. I was coming so often and I was so stressed out during the editing process that I remember coming in the rain one night and slipping and falling and smashing my knee into the front glass of your building um, do- the, the, next to the door and, it's, and, it, and it shattered the glass. Oh my and the God. glass was shattered for, I think, about three weeks. But it's interesting in light of what the major plot point is of Sleepwalk With Me is that I go through glass. That is really weird. Yeah, <laughs> I, Sonny, I, I, hadn't, I had totally forgotten that you did that. Yeah, and it was like that for weeks. Yeah. You broke a building. I broke a building. I'm the Hulk. <laughs> I'm the Hulk. I'm the Hulk. I'm the Hulk. <laughs> yeah. But this is, uh, to bring people up to speed, this is an album called Sleepwalk With Me Live, which is before we made the movie. It was an it was a show, live show off Broadway, directed by Seth Barish, presented by Nathan Lane, which was just like this massive life coup for me, which is that he came to one of my shows at Caroline's and enjoyed it and he was a fan of the other albums and stuff and and he said, "You know, I could if you're doing this off Broadway, like I could put my name on it." And it, and it was like a really generous act. He he, we, there was no, like, paperwork. He didn't make a dime on it. Like, he just sort of gave his name to the show. Wow. Isn't that wild? And then what does that do to have his name on the show? It was like a whole group of people in theater. I mean, you got to remember, this is sort of before, you know, Chris Gethard's show and Neil Brennan's show. This is before, like, a lot of... There's a trend right now of comedians doing shows off-Broadway, and this is before that was sort of a thing. Colin Quinn's had a bunch of them. And, oh, and putting his name on it was signaling to people who don't know theater. you that yeah. that it's theater. This is legitimately theater. Right. It's a night of theater. It's just not, it's not just a cabaret show. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, isn't that wild? Yeah, it's very nice of him. It's one of the most generous things anyone's ever done for me. You could learn from a guy like Nathan Lane. I guess I could. <laughs> um, yes, you and I were talking about this a little bit last week with Jen, where... Your wife. My 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 wife was pointing out that when we had been dating for one week, I invited her to a performance of this show uh, at Upper Citizens Theater in front of like 20 people at like a 6.30 p.m. like uh, workshop of this show. This was before I jumped through the window. The show was completely different, but it was about my breakup with my ex-girlfriend who in the movie and the show is Abby in real ni- in real life her name's Maggie uh and it was uh it was just about a breakup and it was in in and it talks about my sleep my sleepwalking problem and so like for example like the jackal was in there 
I remember I was, I was living with my girlfriend at the time, and I started having this recurring dream that there was a hovering insect-like jackal in our bedroom, which is the scariest animal one's brain can conjure, in my opinion. is a jackal that defies gravity, you know? It, it looked like kind of a bloated tick uh, with, with fur and, and ferocious teeth and teeny arms, which are the scariest kind because they're unpredictable, and it was... Such a terrifying image that every night I would jump on our bed and strike a karate pose. I had never taken karate, but I, I had the books from book fair when I was a kid. And I would say, Abby, that was my girlfriend, there's a jackal in the room. And she got so used to this that she could talk me down while remaining asleep. She said, there's no jackal. Please go to bed. And I would say, are you sure? And she would say, yes, Michael, there's no jackal. Please go to bed. And I would say, okay. <laughs> and I would go to bed knowing there was a jackal. Has the jackal ever come back? No, but it's a lot of times it's just animals. I'm always like running away from stuff. I mean, but my dreams, it's kind of embarrassing. It's like, you know, sometimes I, I talk about in the new show, like there's a dream where I'm choking on like invisible aliens. They're going down my throat and I reach into my throat because the thing about aliens is once they get in there, they ain't coming out. And so... <laughs> But that, but they're all this—they're all these similar things. I'm always like being attacked or smothered, or stomped on in some way. It's interesting to me that you have so many animals in your dreams because seeing that in the show, I, I realized I don't have any animals in my imaginative life. <laughs> like my imagination stops with our own species. Like there's never any animals at all. There's never yeah. any bears. There's never any jackals. Like like I have. Uh, anxiety dreams like most people do. In yeah. fact, my therapist once explained to me that most dreams that most people have, he's like 85, 90% of all dreams are anxiety dreams. He's like, that's, yeah. that's what your brain needs to do. And which is so unpleasant. To sort of work out problems. I guess. Yeah. And But for me, it really is just like always the most, it's the same scenarios over and over, which are just, I'm supposed to finish writing the show and I haven't finished it. I'm supposed to be in front of a class and yeah. I'm not ready and I'm not going to graduate. Or I've been going to high school for 30 years and I haven't <laughs> told anybody, but I'm still going to class and oh I God. still haven't gotten out. Wow. I don't have my degree. Or um, or I'm supposed to do my old magic act. Oh, my god! That came out in force when we, when we did the uh, magic episode of our show a couple months ago. Oh I started dreaming about the magic act, but I was dreaming about it even before then. And and sometimes like I I can see all the props and and I realize like I can't remember the whole act anymore in order. And I also realize like oh it's not good, which I didn't know as a kid. The thing that I that I've had to come to grips with recently about about my existence is that, you know, there's that phrase like if I die before I wake. I think it's a famous prayer. It's like, I literally have that. Like I literally have like. I should say that before bed. Like if I die before I wake, like a few things. Here's a few things I need to get off my chest. Um, hmm. Because I could die. I could die in my sleep. I mean, I I sometimes if I'm feeling particularly anxious right before bed, I'll have these like imagine like these sort of hallucinations of like what if I 
fall asleep and I, and I wake up and I'm bashing my head against the wall or I'm bashing my head against the floor. Oh my God. I know, it's really scary. So, which is why I have, and I talk about this in the new show a little bit, in addition to the sleeping bag, which I talk about in Sleepwalk With Me, I created a fitted sleep sheet that fits me into my bed and I cut out a hole for my head and one for my wife and I, I use a rope and two clasps to secure it underneath the mattress. And I have about, I have about five of them. I duplicated them. I, I went to the uh, tailor on my corner and I, and I took out this, this sheet with two large holes and a rope and two clasps. And I said, can you make more of these? And he goes, no. <laughs> and I realized he thought it was like this S&M sex sheet, which I wish it were, but it's not. It's like this, you know, it's this like straight jacket. And uh, when I'm in it, I, I actually feel safer than when I'm in like a sleeping bag. But it's crazy. I mean, you really I mean, I really do have to face down my mortality like like literally every day because of this bizarro disorder I have. I, I think about this all the time. Every time I go to sleep almost, I'm just like, what a fucked up system it is <laughs> that we have to be unconscious <laughs> for a certain number of days. It's like we have to simulate our own death. Yeah. Every single day at the end of the day, we have to actually like end our consciousness. Like, yeah. you know, just like, I, I, even as a child, I was just like, this is such bullshit. Yeah. And 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 I feel it now when I have to go to sleep. I just can't stand the idea. Right. Like with a proper dose of futurism, we could we could get rid of sleep. So there's one of the dreams that you have in the in the show where you talk about um, how you win a prize, but even in your own dream, you get second place. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's like Dustbuster Olympics. And one night I had a dream that I was in the Olympics for some kind of arbitrary event, like dustbustering. And it told me that I got third place. And I stood up on the third place podium, and I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I'm new to the sport, you know. Even in my dreams, I don't win, per se. In my, in my wildest dreams, I place. And they say... They say, actually, we reconsidered and we decided that you got second place. And I move over to the second place podium and it starts wobbling. And it's wobbling and wobbling. And I wake up and I'm falling off the top of our five-foot bookcase in our living room. And I land on the floor hard on top of our TiVo. I know. (laughs) And it breaks into pieces. And it was like one of these stories you hear where people black out drinking and they wake up in Idaho. They don't know where they are. They're just like, oh, no. (laughs) Hardee's, you know, or whatever's there. But it was in my own living room. I was just like, oh, no. Devo pieces. And... (laughs) And I get up and I go back to bed and Abby wakes me up in the morning and she says, Michael, what happened to the TiVo? And I say, I got second place. And I'm really sorry.
it reminds me of this thing that um, Roseanne Barr once said on Howard, on Howard Stern, yeah. where she said, she was talking about like how she loved the Beatles and she really just like, and the, and the one who she fantasized about was Ringo. Sure. And and he was like, wait, 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 nobody fantasizes about Ringo. Like, why not like, like Paul or George? And she's like, no, she's like, she's like, even in my fantasy, yeah. I knew I was not going to get like yeah. the popular ones. Like, she's like, Ringo was the best I was going to get. Well, you know what's funny about this show that I was thinking about on the subway here is, is that I conceived the show before I jumped through the window. Which which makes it seem in a way sort of like a Marina Abramovich or like an Ai Weiwei kind of like art experiment that I jumped through the window. Hmm. But it wasn't. I, in other words, I What ha- was the plot going to be when you didn't have the window? It was going to be about me and Abby and our breakup. Because you had already broken up. But the jumping through the window hadn't happened. And I was working with Seth Barish, not formally as a director, but I was, I was meeting with him because I had seen a one-person show he directed called The Tricky Part. I loved it. Yeah, it's great. So I, I approached him. Yeah, and I, I approached him. I go, would you consider directing this show? And I gave him the script for what was Sleepwalk with me. And he read it and he goes, it's good, but like there's no like sort of main event that occurs that could make it a play. And then, hmm. but we we were meeting and blah, blah, blah. And then one day we're at a Starbucks, like not far from here in Midtown. And I go, craziest thing happened. I was on this trip and while the wall I jumped through the second story window sleepwalking. Nearly killed me. Like, I'm lucky to be alive. And he goes, that's, you know, that's, that's the show. It's five years ago and I'm in Walla Walla, Washington. I'm lying in bed at La Quinta Inn. <laughs> I'm watching the news, I'm Googling myself, and I'm eating a pizza all at the same time. And I fall asleep and have a dream that there's a guided missile headed towards my room, and I jump out of bed, and I say, what's the plan? And they say, the missile coordinates are set specifically on you. So I decide in my dream, and as it turns out, in my life, to jump out my window. So as to detonate outside the window, for the sake of the platoon. In my dreams, I'm a hero. And there are two important details. One, I was on the second floor. Two, the window was closed. It was January, so I jumped through a window like the Hulk. And I say that because that's how I described it at the emergency room. It's a very difficult thing to explain when one has jumped through a window. I was like, you know the Hulk? You know how he kind of just... Just kind of jumps through stuff? Yeah, that's like me. I have this habit of preemptively shouting when something traumatic is about to happen. Like, if someone were going to come up to me after the show and punch me in the face, I would just go, ah! Thinking maybe he'd be like, this is weird. I'm out of here. I'm not punching the shouting guy. And so I jumped through the window and I screamed, ah! And what was remarkable was that I landed on the front lawn and I took a fall and I got up and I kept running. And I'm running, and I'm slowly realizing I'm on the front lawn of La Quinta Inn in Wyo, Wyo, Washington, in my underwear, bleeding. And I'm like, oh, no. But in that moment, I was relieved that I hadn't been hit by the missile. Whenever you're a confessional storyteller or you're an autobiographical storyteller, whenever something extreme happens, whether you're you get a bladder tumor or you jump through a window, it's like, you go like, well, I'm going to use this someday. 
I mean, this is insane, but there's some part of your brain going like, yeah. This is, this is, <laughs> it's so this funny because I have no version of that in my life. Like, stuff doesn't happen to me where I think that. But but I'm constantly, if something, if I observe something happening to somebody else, that's when I have that. I'm constantly collecting that because that's what I do. Yeah, and so and so he goes, that's, that's your show. And I go, I get what you're saying. I appreciate what you're saying. I'm just not ready to talk about it on stage because I felt like people would think I'm insane. Like, I thought I... I literally thought like I could, I, I, I might sort of be taken away in a straitjacket. Wait, why would jumping through the window be worse than the jackal dream and the dustbuster Olympics? Well, the same thing that I was saying earlier about pseudo-suicide. Like if I died, it, the police would have called it pseudo-suicide. That's how extreme what happened was. Oh, I see. So I had this fear that, you know, and it happened when I'm out on the road pursuing my dream. I had this fear like, oh, no, don't take me off the road. Like if, like, my parents get involved or some loved one gets involved, they're going to be like, we're going to put you in a hospital for a few weeks and we're going to, you know what I mean? And then next thing you know, like the whole, you know, the whole dream sort of dissolves. And so I did have this fear about talking about it. And so and so that sort of, it took me a few months to get comfortable with the idea of telling it. One of the things that, that was interesting hearing the show again is it reminded me that when we made the movie of this show, one of the original goals was to do it without narration. Yeah. And when we made the version without narration, what we realized is it was the narration that made people like you. That the fact that... that um we would show the movie without narration to people and people just hated your, your guts. Yeah. And what was really interesting is that jokes that you had been doing on stage for a year or two years at that point. Yeah, literally years. Yeah. yeah three, they, three years. That had years, been like killing on stage. Yeah. In the movie, the exact same jokes, just there'd be nothing. It was crickets. It was fascinating. I remember you saying, like, I just don't even understand the math of this. I know the material solid. I put it in front of hundreds of but audiences. Early, I mean, early and, cuts of the movie, there was no laughter. Yeah. Well, it was a little bit, but it was <laughs> almost none. Yeah. And um, and yeah, people hated you, hated the movie. And um, <laughs> <laughs> they did. They did. They hated they me did. too. Yeah, no, no. The, the criticisms of the movie were very pointed <laughs> towards me. Yeah, well, the one about, like, yeah. But anyway, so, but, and so we, we had no narration in it because we thought, well, it's a movie. You don't need a right. narrator. And then we realized that we had to put the narrator back in because at the beginning of the movie, the guy is such, is he's so, everything he's doing is unlikable. He wants to be a comedian. He's a terrible comedian. That's he's right. He's got this great girl right. and he's not appreciating and he's her. Not in, he's not into her. And and so yeah. everything he does, you don't like him. And and the thing that made the, the one-man show work is that you were in the future. And you yeah, also knew also. You, you were with us and you knew, oh, this version of myself, I was so naive. I was so wrong-headed. And you have the same attitude about the guy who you had been that that we do. And then, and then we went and shot in a car. And if anybody sees the movie ever, like this footage in the car is filmed like in a completely fast. Yeah, it's like a cheap. run and run what they call run and gun kind of style. It was just like no lighting. Me, yeah, no lighting. Me, me in a car with a camera operator and a sound recordist, literally driving around New York State and Connecticut. Yeah, and and filming things that you and I and and uh, and Jeff had conceived in the edit. Jeff, our editor, and then we put those in, and then suddenly, when we put that in, and that you and you were somebody in the future telling the story of what happened in the past, all the jokes that hadn't gotten laughs yeah. suddenly got the laughs that they were supposed to get. But it wasn't just a likability thing, in my opinion. It was that they knew that I wasn't going to die 
and that I was going to be okay because I'm telling them the story in the future. So in other words, I'm saying, I'm going to tell you, I look at the camera, like, I'm going to tell you a story, and it's true. And they're going like, oh, okay, so he's okay. He doesn't have scars on him. He's not bleeding. There's not a thing. So when we, you know, when we go into, like, jumping through a window or or whatever the, the extreme dangerous situation is, we're like, he'll be all right because the, 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 the narration, the narrator's okay. Yeah. So, so on your show, how do you wrap it up? Well, the show, in, in the show, the sh- this is a very distinct difference from the show and no, the I movie. No, I mean in the, in the podcast. Oh, in the podcast. Well, how do you wrap up your podcast? Um, it'd be funny if I made up like a slogan I say. And I was like, <laughs> what we say at the end is like, like boogaloogaloo, so you got to say it. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> okay, just make it up. <laughs> that would be funny. <laughs> So here we this has been the old ones. Boogaloogaloo. Boogaloogaloo to you too, <laughs> buddy. <laughs> All right, this has been the old ones. If you like that, check out the other episodes forthcoming and all the tour dates on thenewone.com. I've been in 25 cities so far with my new show. This week I'm in Charleston, South Carolina, as well as Atlanta. We added a third show. In the new year, I'm at La Jolla Playhouse, which is near San Diego, for eight shows in this really intimate, gorgeous little theater, La Jolla Playhouse. We just added a second show in Boise, which I love, at the Egyptian. I'm also performing in Salt Lake City. I wrote an open letter to comedy fans in Utah on my Twitter feed, if you want to read that. It's a fun one. Santa Barbara, San Luis Obispo, Aspen, a bunch of shows in Canada that are now live. Canadians have been complaining for years that I only go to Toronto and Montreal. You can complain no longer. I'm going to Vancouver, Calgary, and Edmonton. The ball is in your court, Canada. Uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, which goes on sale this Friday. That show is at a church, which is fitting and and fun. I've performed there before. More announced soon, thenewone.com, a big New York City announcement coming soon. The Old Ones is produced by myself, along with Joe Birbiglia, Peter Salomon, and Johnny Levin. Edited by Daniel Spaventa. Sound mixed by Kate Belinsky. Associate producer, Will Lupica. Music by Roger Neal. Special thanks to Seth Barish, who directed Sleepwalk With Me's original stage production at the Bleecker Street Theater, produced by Eli Gonda and presented by Nathan Lane. I'd also like to thank Jack Vaughn, Mike Berkowitz, Isaac Dunham, and SiriusXM, my wife Jennifer Stein, as well as Comedy Central Records, who released this album in 2011, which became a film released by IFC Films in 2012 and is available now on Netflix if you have someone's password. Special thanks to Steve Wilson and all of our friends at Apple Podcasts. If you want to see me plug this podcast that you're listening to right now on television, which is a completely different format, I was on Seth Meyers last week. It's on YouTube. There's a funny story about how I was afraid to get sued by SNL when I made my movie Don't Think Twice, which is true. My biggest thanks to Ira Glass, who did this interview and recorded this interview. He did all the machinery and the the soundboard and everything. He is a master of many things. He's been very generous to me over the years. And this is another thing I have to thank him for. My resentment grows and grows. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time.